Anne Dujobanian was born in Yerevan, Armenia, where she started her investigative journalism career. One of her first two assignments was exposing the violation of children's rights in orphanages and specialized schools. Since then, she has worked in television as a reporter and anchor, and she now writes numerous for numerous publications from her desk in California, specializing in Armenian projects. She has collaborated with the Husha Madian project, which represents stories of Soviet Armenia and the diaspora ex expatriates who emigrated to the United States. The Armenian American Chamber of Commerce awarded her with the Women in Journalism Award in 2016. Please welcome Ani Dujabanian. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> so much for the introduction, Debbie, and thank you so much for inviting me. Just a small correction, if I may. The sure. uh, project that you were talking about that, uh, that is writing and representing the Arme Armenian repatriates who later on immigrated to the U.S. is Haidena uh, Dars, which means repatriate in Armenian. And Hushamadian is specializing in the life uh, of the Armenian population during the Ottoman Empire. Oh, uh, okay. Armenian is a democratic country. It does yeah. remind me of my ancestral home of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And it has changed hands a few times. You almost need a playbook, <laughs> including being under Soviet rule. Yeah. So with that, what was it like growing up there? I was born in 1990. And when I grew up, the Soviet Union collapsed and Armenia gained the independence in 1991. I was a child during the Soviet Union years. So I don't really remember that much. But when I went to school, it was still the Soviet Union. And I remember wearing the uniform, the school uniform. You might be aware of it because all the uh, countries that were in the Soviet Union so, but had to wear the uniform. So two years, I, were, I wore it two years. So that was uh, like the vivid memory of belonging to that country. But then we gained the independence and the war in Artsakh happened simultaneously. So my childhood memories are more related to that period of time, to the war and post-war uh, period. And then I started my work as a journalist in 2000. When I entered to the university, I started working because I realized quickly that just getting the education won't be enough. So I have to have the practical work in order to become a journalist. So I started to work and when I was graduating, the university, the bachelor uh, program, I had the offer to work in the television, the local TV station as a news reporter. So that's how it started. But in the university, yes, I started to work with the investigative journalists. And the um, story that you mentioned, the, the investigation, I did it with two of my colleagues, journalists, and they now too, they are working as journalists. I guess any story, any project involves investigation somehow. But that was my first attempt. I stopped doing investigative journalism. It was hard. It was it was very emotional, but it was great. So we did it with our mentor and uh, professor, and we learned a lot from him. So, <laughs> wow, that was a tough first project then. It was. It was. I remember my mother telling me I was so drained. I was 
emotionally drained. It, it was really hard, but we did it and the impact tremendous. So my mom was telling, was asking me, begging me not to do it, not to go there because I would come home from that project, from, from the work. And it wasn't, it wasn't good. <laughs> I mean, the, the impact is wasn't, it wasn't good on me on a personal level, but I learned a lot and I learned not to take it too personally also because it's part of our job to hear other stories, other people's stories, to be involved somehow in their stories as writers. So it helped. And of course, this area of the world is filled with difficult stories. And the Armenian genocide was a really dark period in your country's history. And in 1915, the Ottoman government embarked on a systematic decimation of its Armenian population, which lasted eight years. So that is relatively fresh history. So how does that sit in the shadows of a family and a community? Yes, well, it means, of course, a lot for the Armenian community in Armenia, for the Armenian population in Armenia and the Armenian community community in the diaspora. And me, uh, personally, I am a descendant of the Armenian genocide survivors from my father's side. They were from Syria, Kesab, and they some part of the family immigrated, stayed in Kesab in Syria, and the other part immigrated to Beirut, Lebanon. They're still there. I have a lot of family there, family there, and some of them repatriated to Armenia, the Soviet Armenia. The genocide itself, well, being uh, part of the genocide, being the survivors of the genocide, is part of our identity somehow. So I don't know if we have this genetic memory or not. There are a lot of researches about that, but just... Remembering telling the stories and uh, telling the stories of that period of time, the survivors, is uh, how we keep it alive. We are not victims. I guess this new generation is trying to tell the world that we are not victims. Yes, that horrible, horrible thing happened, but we are still alive. We will thrive. We are thriving and we are just preserving the memory and will one day gain the justice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a tough history. I think a lot of families in other countries can certainly relate to that. Is this why you've dedicated your life to telling people? No, not because of the genocide. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't want to write about it. It was too hard for me as an Armenian, as a mother, as a daughter, and as a sister to write about it because for a long period of time I couldn't even talk about it. It was really hard. And then since I immigrated to the U.S., so I became a member of the diaspora. And I started to meet with these people and see how they're doing their best to survive as Armenians, to build their lives, their, uh, the life of the uh, future generation. And we want it or not, uh, diaspora exists and it will exist. I don't know about other countries, other uh, nations, but I'm talking about the Armenian nation. I realized that these stories are not really being told because the older generation, the older diaspora is kind of dying and the new generation is doing 
a lot of great things and nobody's talking, almost nobody's talking about it. So I decided that I can be that person because I know all these people. I constantly hear their stories and I have the ability to write. That's something that that's probably the most uh, important thing that I have that I know how to do. (laughs) And I decided to do it. Well, of course, surprisingly, during this pandemic, I realized that I have time actually to do it after raising my family and doing other jobs and being a mom and and the wife and everything. I finally, I had the time to dedicate myself to uh, something that I really love, my passion. (laughs) How different is Yerevan from California? (laughs) (laughs) It is different. It's when you are away from your home, you can see things that you couldn't see when you were there. Not bad or good things, just different. You can judge. I mean, not judge, but uh, yes, yeah, somehow you can judge differently about the people, about the politics, uh, the economy, everything that is going on in there. I went there during these 15 years. I went there twice. I was planning to go there again this year, but the pandemic happened. So hopefully next year, but it's different. You appreciate stuff that you wouldn't appreciate when you were living there. When I first moved here and I realized how the life is different here in a very developed country like US, I felt really bad for my people back there because I wanted everything good that has this country has to be happening to them as well because they deserve it. They're my brothers and sisters and everyone that I know and love. But we'll see. We don't lose our hope. So the diaspora and um, and motherland, they coexist together. And I want to show that both have to help each other, not to fight. But uh, the diaspora should realize that without Armenia, we don't exist. We would become just Americans or French or Italians or anything else, but not Armenians. So we have to do everything for our country to to thrive. (laughs) So did you learn English in Armenia or did you learn it when you came to the U.S.? So English is the third foreign language for me after Russian and French. (laughs) Yeah, so I didn't really learn English back in Armenia. I when we decided we were going to move here, so I we hired a tutor, very very knowledgeable young woman who taught me English, but the basic English. So when I moved here, I was already pregnant with my son, so I couldn't really and I didn't know anything here. So only my husband's family, so I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't drive and like the usual immigrant life immigrant person would do so i started to go to college to the community college but it lasted very short because i was i had to have my child and raise my family so i couldn't really pursue an education as uh, is and i decided to learn the language myself so i read a lot i uh, did a lot of I took a lot of classes on but not official classes and I don't know I just uh, worked on myself and then when uh, my kids were older and I could work I started to work places not related to journalism but related to the communication because that's very important in order to learn the language and learn the community 
And I learned a lot uh, about my own community from those works. I work at the customer service, at the communication departments. That helped a lot. It was like a project for me, a <laughs> learning project. <laughs> I can't even imagine what it's like for people to come here and learn a new language. Because even if you learn from programs, we do not speak in proper English. <laughs> We speak in slang. Yeah. That makes it all the more confusing, especially mm -hmm. when we use, <laughs> you know, phrases that are commonplace. But like idiom, if you take them literally, they don't. They they sound ridiculous. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's where you have to just communicate with people, different people, all the time. I remember when I first came here, I went to there is a store, department store here, so we went there the second day when I came to America, to the United States, there was a woman, she was asking me something about clothes. Probably, now I don't remember now, but probably she would ask, uh, what do I want or anything like that. And I remember I was just standing there looking at her and not understanding any word <laughs> she was saying. <laughs> and that was really stressful. Because I learned that basic English, I, I should have understand what she was saying, but I couldn't. I just couldn't. But I think also the older we get, the, the harder it is to retain, at least for myself. Yes. I, I can't retain anything five minutes later yeah, when it comes to true. learning language. <laughs> you have to put it in practice, right? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> When you're talking to the diaspora in California and in the United States, is it difficult to flesh out some of their stories? Well, some of them may be reluctant to, to talk about their stories because they might fear some repercussions. Or There is a very important thing that we need to know about the Armenian diaspora, that the Armenian diaspora itself is very diverse. So the Armenians are coming, came and still coming from the different parts of the world, uh, different countries of the world. Um, well, and their stories are different. Some of them, I didn't meet anyone who would fear to tell uh, their stories. I can't recall anything like that. But yes, sometimes people are not very comfortable, especially when I was doing that project with um, about the repatriation. Because some people, they were um, sent to Siberia. During, God. Yeah, that, that, was, that was horrible. That was another emo very emotional project to do because I was just asking these people to tell me their stories. How uh, did they survive in that period of time, in that era and in that cold? I can't tolerate cold. So I would just think of these poor people. I mean, and they they raised families there. I interviewed people who were born there. Their parents were sent to Siberia and they were born there. And they grew up there before the Soviet Union collapsed and they were mm -hmm. sent back home. And most of these people, a lot of these people are, were repatriates from other countries. So whenever the Iron Curtain was down, they immigrated to the countries they, that they were immediately because they couldn't stay there. It was too painful for them. Siberia doesn't have a great reputation. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my God, no. I mean, uh, and th- there is a movie. So the director of the project, my dear friend and journalist who started this project, and he invited me to do the stories of uh, the, those uh, who live here in the US. He he made this project into three movies. So the movies are telling the stories. These people are the, st- telling their stories in these documentaries. It's it's really terrific. It's like an encyclopedia of that time because we don't have too much history documented during uh, about that period of time. What is it called? The uh, it's I don't recall the I mean the, there are three movies. Yeah. Uh, there are no links. I think uh, oh. they're just CDs. I mean DVDs, okay. and they're being uh, shown in. He presented the the movie here. He did it in Europe, in Armenia, in Russia, even in Russia. And yeah, it was really interesting. What was the hardest thing to get used to when you came here from Armenia culturally? What was the hardest thing to get used to? I was talking to Czech and Russian hockey players that came here that didn't understand English when they arrived. They all had similar stories of how the things that they found the most difficult to yeah. get used to. Probably, I'm thinking like almost everything was difficult. <laughs> <laughs> was they really said hard. number one was the food. The they food. couldn't get used to the food. Mm, not the food is different. It is. No, not the food. Probably, you know what, getting used to the, uh, well, driving, not the driving, the process itself, but driving and finding your ways and getting used to the city and cities when you drive, probably that because in Armenia, I didn't even think about driving because we have like public transportation. I don't know how it is in uh, Canada, in in Alberta, right? Uh, So we would just take a bus or a taxi, but n- not to think about driving. And here you basically cannot go anywhere without driving, without having a car. So first, well, learning how to drive and then learning how to drive on the streets and uh, in the city. I think that was the most difficult thing. And then uh, I missed because I don't have anyone here. All my family, mm-hmm. Armenia. Yes, it's only my husband's side is here, and then I have some distant uh, relatives. They're relatives, but they're not my family. So, my I missed very much my family. I missed my country a lot. Mm. And you kind of get used to it. What are some ex- examples of things that we take for granted here in North America that you've never experienced in Armenia? There's a lot of things. But we do take a lot for granted here. And, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, it's it would be interesting to hear even just a couple of examples. I know you have electricity in Armenia, but you know what I mean? It's There's yeah. things that we think is going to be there every day that is not mm-hmm. so easy to get over there. Yes, of course. Well, there are a lot of things in like uh, everyday life just to use as a as a woman that make your life very easy that are not in Armenia, unfortunately. Well, the, then the, the cleanliness of the city, the law and order, that's what that's what's very important to me, because you can just drive or cross the street very easy and you don't fear about your own life. I'm not saying that in Armenia it's not like that, but it's different. 
Yeah. It's completely different. When you live there, you get used to that, the way the, the city, the country lives. But here, and then the freedom. The freedom, that's what I like most about this country, that you're just free. You can do whatever you please, of course, with the responsibility. That's what I teach my kids every time, that the freedom comes with a huge responsibility. But that's not being judged for everything you do or for everything you say. Mm -hmm. So it almost sounds like some of these countries are like a small town. Because if you live in a small town, that's kind of what it's like. Exactly. Exactly. I lived in a town briefly that was 750 people. Well, they knew what you bought at the grocery store. They knew when you got up, when you went to bed. (laughs) (laughs) It It was suffocating. Yes, that's true. And you but, come into the city and nobody really gives a damn. So yes. it's great. <laughs> That's exactly how I felt. <laughs> but in a way, uh, living in a small city or um, in a small town is somehow comforting because I grew up in those backyards where everybody knew everybody. And it was it was good because we were safe. That what that sense of safety, I don't find it here. I can't because yeah. the community is different. And then Armenia is mostly populated by Armenians, like 95% or something. But here we see every representative of every culture, every nation. And uh, you don't, sometimes you don't really know how to approach them and what is safe, what is not safe. But then back there in Armenia, everybody, everybody knew everybody. Mm. Just uh, it's like the kid was being raised by the community, not only by the parents. Yeah, that's a really good comparison. The safety aspect of it, yeah, that is interesting. You get used to it. Yes, you course. get used to it, and I know it's different here in Canada where I live than it is maybe where you live. Mm. But there are a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Our culture is basically the same. There are some differences but we're very similar and of course as you grow you have more issues with the population (laughs) but again i just want to emphasize this that one thing that i really like here is the diversity diverse cultures and nations i just enjoy it every time when i meet someone when i taste different food when i talk to someone and they're talking about their culture um, their religion, their their food, their background—it's amazing. You learn too so much. The more diverse your friends are, I think mm-hmm. the richer you are, and the more you understand about uh, the world. That's true. Yeah, yes. I love that. So, tell us about that project with the Open Digital Archive, um, your collection there. Oh. Yes, Hushamadian, which uh, translates into memory book. So the whoever fu- who founded it, Vahed Hashchan, they did this project. They're based in Germany. So I was reading about uh, this project. I was reading about all these stories about people who lived during the Ottoman Empire and who later survived the genocide. And I was like, hey, I have a similar story. My great-grandparents are from Syria. Maybe I can write about this too. But then when I was talking to Vahem, he said that the project is featuring also stuff, something from that era. 
And when I was talking to my father, he mentioned that my uncle has a lot of like everyday stuff that my great grandmother brought with her when they repatriated to Armenia. I called him, I asked him to send me some pictures and I was amazed seeing all these diff- different, well, there was a belt, silk belt that my great grandfather used to wear and it was like something of a pride. I don't know, <laughs> that's what I've been told. And there were some dishes and other stuff to make the bread and baking paklava, you know, that's an Armenian or Mediterranean sweet. So, pastry. So uh, we decided that we started the project and it was right in the middle of the pandemic. So I couldn't travel anywhere. It lasted a year around that, <laughs> that time because I would just call uh, my relatives in Lebanon interview them, call my uncle in or, and aunts in Armenia, uh, interview them, ask my cousin to take pictures, to send it to them, and then I would send it to Vahe, to Germany. It was, <laughs> it was, it was amazing. <laughs> I loved it. It took a long time, but I think it turned out, it turned out well. At least the story is there. That's what they do. They just gather all these stories and it's very important. They're digital. The most important part about the project is that it's being translated into Turkish as well. Yes, legacy is important. And a legacy really starts family by family. That's right. (laughs) In Canada, I know, like in Alberta here, we live on the prairies even though we border the mountains in Calgary in the southern part. But in the prairies, like uh, I'm from Edmonton, a lot of the communities used to publish a history book of that area. They would do like family histories. These books, while they might be hardcover and they yeah. they just go to that community, they might have found them, themselves on a library shelf somewhere, but that's about mm-hmm. probably as far as they went. But that's yeah. that's true, yes. But still, it's important. I have one from uh, my friend's neighborhood, which I spent a lot of time in, and it's kind of cool to go through there and see, oh, I know that person. I know that <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's very important, especially during this digital age. Yes. Uh, having everything digitalized is make, making it very easier to access. Oh, it's huge. It's huge because it can stay there even after we're gone. Yes. <laughs> and, and I think it's important to get it down. I think like with the Holocaust project, that's mm-hmm. why it was so important to document some of those people's stories while they were still alive and i think the same should be for every facet of our community maybe we wouldn't be in repeating so much history (laughs) hopefully so you're writing journeys us through the lives of so many amazing people are these the stories that make your heart sing is this what you want to write about that you or is there something that you want to write about that you haven't had the opportunity to yet? Um, uh, I decided to write about the diverse communities. But, well, that diversity starts from my community because I know my community well, right? And in order to write about other communities, I have to get uh, to know them as well. So I am just finding these people, not not finding, well, yes, I am finding these amazing people and I'm writing their stories. I don't know who would I find again 
I, I'm I, sure there's a few out there. <laughs> there's a lot. Yes, there's a lot of people. Great. I mean, they're everywhere. They're in every aspect. They're doing amazing jobs. And, and you know, the interesting part is that these people, they're diverse too, because they're coming from diverse backgrounds, families, not only Armenian, because their parents are Armenian and Mexican, Armenian and Italian, and different, different people. So that's another important aspect of a dias of diaspora. That's inevitable. As a small nation, yes, we are trying to preserve our nationality, but living in the diaspora with all these uh, different nations, it's inevitable. So that's another thing uh, that I really love to capture in my stories. I have a couple of uh, stories like that. and But my main goal, I think, is going to be a documentary project. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you if you're going to work on a documentary film. Yes, I have, I have all these ideas in my head. I've been writing about all this for since I moved here. I was writing in Armenian for the Armenian newspapers back then. And then the project who had another we did, and, but there were just projects because I wasn't free. I had my family to, I had to raise my family. I was very involved in my kids' life, in their school. That's very important to me. And well, now they're a little grown up, so I can, uh, <laughs> I can do uh, more stuff uh, for myself and it's it's going to be ongoing and my main goal is to learn uh, to make other uh, communities learn about my armenian uh, community about armenian heritage so there are a couple of exciting things coming up i i can't talk about them uh, right now but my main goal is to work with non-armenian newspapers and outlets to tell my nation's story, my country's story. How how can we get more people to, whether you're a journalist or not, just more people to document their stories? I tried to get my mom and my dad to talk about their histories, mm -hmm. but they just wouldn't. They <laughs> so, wouldn't. Hmm. so the only the only documentation I had I had an uncle that called a whole bunch of information from that side of the family. But really, the only information I have about my dad's side is researching the history of Ukrainians that came to Canada. That's my basic only <laughs> research. It took a while to figure out where they even came from, my ancestors mm -hmm. came from. And then I learned a little more about that place which is Shortel, Poland, Soviet, <laughs> Ukraine is like, like where you're from, it changed hands a million times. So, but we need more people to talk about their histories, but it's hard with the older people. Yes, it is. It, it is very hard. I think we need the right approach. I don't know, but there, there always would be some people who wouldn't talk. Yeah, I know a lot of, a lot of. It's uh, unfortunate because we miss yeah. a lot of these great stories and it's, how really it impacts our future as well. Mm -hmm. That's true. I know a lot of people who, a lot of genocide survivors who wouldn't uh, tell their story because they didn't want to leave through that again, like go through that again. It was too painful for them. 
um, and they just passed away and the story is gone with them. So yeah. that's very unfortunate. That's right. And well, my fault was that when my grandfather was alive, I didn't ask him anything. I was I was a child when he passed away, unfortunately. Right. But uh, again, but his sisters were alive. His brothers were alive. There were nine kids in his family. So, but now I decided to do this project and I just found some of my relatives who could tell me stories that they, from their parents. So I, I'm very sorry I, that I didn't do this project. But you know, I, I can feel for you because it's the same for me. I was older, well into my adult years by the time I thought, oh, I want to find out what my history is. Yeah. <laughs> some of us might have to go to Ancestry.com to do it. <laughs> anyway. I did it, by the way. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Me neither. I have to thank you so much for this time. It's so great to talk about legacy and family histories and all the work that you've been doing. So thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie. This is like amazing. I'm going to confess something. This is my first interview. That's uh, not me who's conducting. <laughs> so uh. <laughs> now I know how to feel uh, on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> uh, awesome. It was a pleasure, really. I don't know. I'm you. not sure how I did, but. <laughs> <laughs>